Welcome to episode 6. Today we talk about TTP with Professor Marie Scully. Marie is a consultant haematologist at UCLH. We asked Marie, how easy is it to diagnose TTP, especially in the smaller hospitals? Why it's known to be a true medical emergency? The treatment of plasma exchanges and the use of rituximab in new therapies. Great. So it's Professor Marie, isn't it? Professor Marie. Professor Marie Scully. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Um, so I guess the first question is like, since when has uh, UCLH been such had such a large kind of TTP service? Yeah. And your role maybe in kind of okay. in in setting that up or its development. So TTP is a new disease in as much as the deficiency in the enzyme causing it was only identified in the late 1990s. So the diagnosis up till that point was very difficult. In fact, very few patients were diagnosed. So it really came to being at UCLH. We did treat patients previously, but not big numbers, with the use of rituximab and the referral of patients from other centres because they're quite a difficult group of patients to look after, particularly acutely. And the service has just grown because of word of mouth, really, and the availability of 24-7 apheresis. So that's how it's established, and it's really just snowballed. So we are in the privileged position of being the biggest unit in the world. Wow. wow. What was it about TTP for you and how you got to where you are? Oh, right. So that was all just fate, I'm afraid. There's nothing more than that. Um, so particular interest in haemostasis and thrombosis. And there was a research position that came up at, because I'm normally a South Thames person, not a North Thames. Okay. Um, started doing the research and got quite a lot out of it in the two and a half years that I did it. And the service expanded. So it just grew from there, really. So it was a new disease when I started research, very new. It only just characterised the gene for ADAMP13, so it just lucky at the time in the position. Plus, we already had the infrastructure, albeit a skeleton infrastructure, um, and it's just grown over the last 15 years as we've done more research and have a bigger cohort of patients. But the research is based on listening to patients, so that's where all the ideas come from. They will tell you what the problem is, and you just need to put the puzzle together. Oh, wow. Fantastic. So... Just to go back to basics for everything, can you, what is TTP? Oh, I'm so sorry. Would I, sorry. can I borrow a chair? Please do. Yeah. Or I could ask it, what did Sarah say? What is uh, TTP? So yeah, what is TTP, what is TTP and TTP? what is the uh, pathophysiology of it, I guess? Okay. So TTP is an acute life-threatening illness. It's a medical emergency. It's a haematology emergency. And patients present very, very quickly. They don't have a long history beforehand. And they're typically young, so their median age is 30 to 40 years. And often the difficulty is where you can get recurrent symptoms that are not progressive and they just ignore them. And that's usually when they come in very, very sick. So the diet. So would most people would have symptoms. a pattern of symptoms yeah. that they could potentially have gone to a GP or gone to an A&E and sought help about earlier? So usually they don't go because they just feel non-specifically unwell. So they feel like they feel a bit fluey, very tired, they may be a bit yellow looking, and they don't go to seek help, generally because they're young. They usually only go to, to seek help if the urine becomes a funny colour and they think they might have a UTI, or if they have neurological symptoms. But even then, if they go to A&E, they usually get better. So they think they're a stroke and they send them home. So that can be difficult unless they have a further recurrence when they're in A&E. However, with education, people are a lot more attuned, even within the ED setup and outpatients, actually. 
So the majority of patients have some sort of neurological features, be it headaches that they've never had, very severe, to fits, strokes, TIAs, and 10% of them come in intubated and ventilated. So they have a very quick demise. The other symptoms is they can have a bit of renal impairment. They have cardiac disease, but it's only measurable by the troponin, which is often very raised and is a poor prognostic factor and is a sign we need to increase the therapy. Other symptoms, usually, like I say, very non-specific. Because they've got a low platelet count, they can have external epithelial features that would suggest ITP. And many patients have been misdiagnosed, so they have a lot of bruising and petechiae. But in fact, that's just external. Internal is where all the damage is occurring. So they get little clots forming in all of their organs. The exception is the lungs for some reason. And the reason they get clots forming is because TTP is because of an absolute deficiency in an enzyme required to break down von Willebrand factor, which is the biggest protein we have in the body. And when you don't have the enzyme and it's not broken down, it attracts loads of platelets. So there's excessive platelets sitting on the big long protein strings. So even though a patient may have a platelet count of 10,000, their platelet count's completely normal because it's just in the wrong place. So if you give a platelet transfusion, you will make things very much worse. Like it almost drives it. Drives it drives it, it's fire, absolute fuel to the fire. And right. if we and if someone was to give plate so in a I don't know, in a small local district general hospital and someone was to give platelets, would that kill them straight away? It can do. Uh, usually, if it doesn't kill them, they will have significant organ damage. So they will have further neurology or further cardiac symptoms. So it definitely will do that. But if you give them enough platelets or they've got severe disease, it can be enough to just literally kill them on the end of the platelet transfusion. That doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen often in the UK. That's because it's now a more known disease and it becomes part of the differential diagnosis a lot more often. So it's all training. So all the juniors now going through their path exams and the young ones coming through medical school have all heard of TTP. Okay. So it is a medical emergency. But it's about recognising somebody new with a low platelet count and making sure they haven't got other features like leukaemia, TTP, ITP, you know, all those other things. It's in that differential. So when you have all these platelets binding to the von Willebrand factor, you need three main treatments these days to start very, very quickly. So the time frame from considering a diagnosis of TTP to treatment is between four to eight hours. So that's getting the patients here, getting a line in, a vascath into one of the central veins, and starting apheresis. So about 50% of the patients go to intensive care, and the other 50% go to the haematology wards. And the reason is some patients just are well enough. They don't need monitoring critically. And it is a more high dependency unit within the haematology setting. They are not allowed in any other part of the hospital. Is it more their neurological, degree of neurological symptoms that would determine whether they go to intensive care rather than to the ward? It's more if they're intubated, if they've got um, neuro that's a bit more precarious and bed availability sometimes. Yeah, sure. Um, but it's not bed availability that we will put them anywhere in the hospital. They are the only two sites they can go to for, because of the level of in- nursing care is more sort of one-to-one, two-to-one. So uh, 
they can be looked after in a more appropriate manner. Can I just ask, uh, we were just curious, within London, if yeah. you are diagnosed with TTP, yeah. would you definitely come to UCLH or are there other centres that would also take referrals? Yes, yeah, so they can go to GSCT, okay. Hammersmith and George's. Right. But there is a national commissioning process which is nearly at the end, so there will only be about eight centres in the whole of England. Okay. Eight, maybe nine, um, but it will be regional. So the expectation is that we will be the primary centre for London and the South East. Do we know what causes TTP? So it's immune mediated in the majority of cases. What starts the immune system, we do not know, just like we don't know for any other immune kind of conditions. So what starts lupus or thyroid disease or rheumatoid arthritis, we don't know, or ITP even. So it just happens relatively quickly, some sort of antigen, maybe some sort of antigen mimics the antibodies and that's why they form specifically against this ADAMP13, the deficient enzyme. We do know in about 10% they've got a trigger. So it may be pregnancy, occasionally drugs, not often, HIV, but the majority are unknown. It just occurs out of the blue. We, from the ward's perspective, I think we find that we see a, a cluster of people being diagnosed with TTP at the same time. Is there any other viruses that could trigger it? So like if it was flu season, for example, is there anything like that? You'd think there would be, but not. Okay. So the peaks are in September and March in Europe. Okay. In North America, it's not March and September. It's like almost the complete opposite. So it doesn't really fit with a f flu peak, I don't think. So that's more November, December, January, isn't it? Yeah. That would be ideal, because then we could deal with it easier, but unfortunately <laughs> <Prepare>. not. <laughs> Worse is when they get a flu on top of TTP, which is usually when they're most vulnerable. It just triggers it off again. I see. And the likelihood of them having a relapse once they're discharged? So we monitor them in outpatients and we monitor them with their ADAMP13 activity. So once they leave hospital and their treatment in outpatient initially, we know that they will have a normal ADAMP13 activity. Once that decreases to about 10 to 20%, then we give them rituximab in outpatient and that's why we don't have many relapses here. And it works in about, so the relapse rate used to be 50% and it's down to, it was down to less than 5% and it's creeped up oh, wow. to 10% at the moment, unfortunately. But we can still prevent a, a lot of patients relapsing or coming in really quite sick. So, you know, we kind of get subacute episodes rather than the full-blown. Are there patients that are resistant to the treatments that it doesn't work for? So it works from a clinical perspective. Their platelet count will normalise, but the ADAMP13 won't normalise. And it's less than 5% of all the patients, and they're more difficult. So then you need to decide when you're going to give them more rituximab, and it will be measured by the CD19 level. So when we give Ritux, that goes down to very low levels, because it's a measure of B-cell function. And once that starts going back up to normal levels, depending on their previous history, we would just give them Ritux every year, 18 months. Oh, right, okay. Does it ever just resolve in a sort of, uh, the, when you're doing their ongoing care, you just sort of find that things have kind of, you, you don't need to do maintenance rituximab, they just yeah. don't seem like they're ever going to have a flare-up again? Yeah, we still monitor them because it can happen many years later. So the median time is about eight years, actually, even though we see a big cluster of them within about the first 18 months, two and a half years. Sorry, eight years to result, complete, to, to No, resolve. till they relapse. Oh, to relapse, So okay. you need to right. monitor them for quite some time. 
but they can have different periods of remission. So just because they may have a couple initially that's every couple of years where they need treatment, it doesn't mean it'll be like that forever. You know, it might be another six years and then it just starts drifting down again, the enzyme. I suppose um, we obviously hold an urgent advice phone on the yeah. wards and for, some, for a patient that called up that may have symptoms, um, what would be the first thing that we should do and triaging that call? So if it's one of our TTPs, it's important to contact the registrar or the consultant on call. So the haemostasis consultants are always on. Okay. There's always one of us on out of three. Um, so if there's any problems, we need to know about it. And then we can organise either locally they have a count or we just bring them up because we'll know their background history already. Because yeah. um, if it is symptoms, we can, we'll know what their previous is like. Yeah. So it's better that we know what's going on because there have been a couple of incidences where we haven't known and it has caused problems. Obviously, there's a big wealth of patients that phone through. So, But we would rather that the nurses carrying the phone just contact us directly if there's any issues at all. Yeah, that's good to know. So if I was the nurse looking after a patient who just just been admitted and yeah. you know you've got you've come and just seen them and Siobhan and and you've got a plasma exchange and you know you've got prescriptions for steroids and rituximab and all this sort of stuff like what are the, the things I should be what are the key things for me to be thinking about what what do I need to get right and sort of know about so the patients acutely can go off very very quickly they can be talking and fine one minute and you know they can be unconscious very quickly and deteriorate very quickly, particularly within the first 12, 24, 48 hours. So during that time, it's monitoring really their observations and if they've got neurological features of any type, doing a GCS. So we did some really important work looking at all the ADAMPS levels, etc. But the troponin and their baseline Glasgow Coma Scale will predict mortality. So if their Glasgow Coma Scale is anything below 15, their mortality increases ninefold. Wow. wow. And it's a quite an easy measure yeah. to do. Um, or their blood pressure can drop and they can become what looks like septic, but it usually means they're having a cardiac episode. And we do sometimes have to call out the crash teams and it can be that, you know, they need to go back downstairs. I don't think we get it wrong too many times. Usually we try and fit them into the right scenario. So it's about monitoring them very closely in those first 48 hours. Once we see the platelet count going up, and that's why we get so much treatment in, they become safer. And the newer treatments ensure that that platelet count continues to go up quite quickly. So we don't need to do four hourly neuro obs in someone that's been in for a week or 10 days when their platelet count's running at 130. But in the first 48 hours, that's probably quite important. It kind of feels like maybe anecdotally, there's doesn't seem like there's many patients who once they arrive on the ward, then go to ITU from there. It sounds like the sort of decisions mean they end up going straight to, to ITU, ITU if they're at that sort of illness level. Is that yeah, that, that's absolutely say? true. But, you know, you never know in the first mm. instance. They can deteriorate very quick. You know, patients have presented and died within eight hours, even before you can get plasma exchange into them. Or they may just tinker along in a much slower pace. And the point is, the disease is very variable and how, it, how aggressive it is can be very, very variable. So the treatments we use are based on trying to increase the platelet count so that everyone's safe, both staff and patients. So we give the plasma exchange to replace the missing enzyme. 
And that's why we keep doing plasma exchange. And in somebody that's very sick, particularly on ITU, they may have three 1.5 plasma exchanges within the first 24 hours, which is a lot of nursing man time. And there's no way of giving that enzyme in a more concentrated way. It has to be this really, really, I mean, really sort of intense It's the only way we've got, yeah. yeah, it's the okay. only way we've got at the moment. In the future, yes, it will be much easier. We'll hopefully have recombinant ADAMPS, but you're looking at five years. Okay. But the trials will be starting for the acquired this year, so that'll be quite nice. So that's a bottle of about 10 mils fluid. Oh, wow. I mean, it's okay. black and white difference well, for the future. Too far away. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be so much easier. But probably I still need the initial plasma exchange just while you're getting all the investigations done. Not everyone has TTP. That's, yeah. you know. So we do the plasma exchange to replace the missing enzyme. We give big doses of steroids to begin with because they act quickly to try and remove the antibody that's driving the disease and making the enzyme not work. And the rituximab we give after a day, two days, sometimes three, because it's a much better medication than steroids. Steroids is very uncomfortable for patients and they have, they're wrought with side effects, plus it actually works. So steroids on their own do not work for TTP, only in the acute setting. So the Retox aims to get rid of the antibody and increase the ADAMP13, the missing enzyme, to a normal level. And then we've got this third treatment, this Caplazuzumab, which is a new therapy and it doesn't affect the underlying disease. So where I told you the platelets bind to von Willebrand factor, the big protein, Kapla will bind where the platelets should bind. So it prevents... Okay the platelets binding and making any disease worse but makes your platelet count higher quicker but it also can make you bleed so that's the symptoms we look out for so is that in the just the first few weeks then is that kind of just while you're stabilizing them while we stabilize so it acts as a, a lovely bridge while we're waiting for the rituximab to work so we still plasma exchange to a platelet count of 150 they still get the four retux to begin with, but this background treatment means that the patients are going out much quicker, like a good week earlier, if not more, and then we can continue treatment in outpatients. They all can give it to themselves. They're it's absolutely a subcut pre- injection, isn't subcut. it? So we give the first dose IV before plasma exchange, and then it's subcut daily after plasma exchange. So one of the important things for the nurses on the ward that you might not think about because of timings of drugs, Everything needs to be given after plasma exchange, so steroids, antiretroviral therapies, because it's all cleared. Yes. It's just easy to forget that. Mm. And another thing that we don't use is ACE inhibitors while we're giving plasma exchange. It interacts. It's some sort of cytokine release, so we have to change their blood pressure tablets. Oh, okay. And then we change it back before they leave usually. So it looks like we can't make our mind up, but there is a good scientific <laughs> reason for it. So they're the three main lines of treatment that we give. And we give folic acid, which looks a bit pathetic compared to all these other therapies. But part of it is that patients break down their red cells really, really quickly, so they're hemolyzing, which means they don't go with a normal hemoglobin trigger. So we always have a higher trigger initially for red cell replacement. You use your folic acid very quickly, so you can't increase your hemoglobin if you don't replace it. And none of the patients need a status form. That's the other point. Yes, it's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you don't fill one in, it's fine. Don't yeah. worry, because they have no specific requirements.
I suppose with a, you know, it is an emergency and it's quite a serious condition, it must be quite difficult for your patients and their families, especially if they've come from quite a distance yeah. away. Um, and I know we have Siobhan that is fantastic and links in. Do you link in with lots of other centres quite regularly or other CNS teams that will pick up these patients closer to home? Yeah, so we do have a shared care set up. We have to because otherwise it it won't work for some of them that come particularly from down by the coast. Yeah. They're less likely to have CNSs in fairness. I mean, they just have such a sm smaller cohort of nursing and medical staff and it's too specialist for them to have a TTP specific person. So we send the instructions that we need and they either email and then write to us. And we have that for a lot of places down, particularly by the coast. We try and get the patients up at least every year, which works, but it is very expensive. Mm -hmm. yeah. And there's no way of remunerating that. I mean, it costs hundreds sometimes. The big problem that we've identified, you know, we've spent many years trying to, one, diagnose these cases and two, keep them alive. And I think we're okay at that. But now it's looking at the longer term effects. So when we see them in clinic now, it is a problem. So at least 50% of them have clinical depression. Right. Um, and part of the registry that we do now captures that formally. There's terrible anxiety, particularly on leaving the ward, which we warn them about, and they think they won't get, and they all get. Yes. Mm. Um, so we do see them more frequently to begin with, just because we know these things occur. And so part of the specification for, the, for England through commissioning is to ensure we get a clinical psychologist attending our clinic, which is desperately needed. Mm. And the patients that we refer, which is very frequently now, it's been so beneficial, particularly the unit that we have attached to haematology. They're really good and understand and have helped them through what is a post-traumatic yes. situation. Yeah. I mean, it's in a life-threatening illness. You know, they have a very high risk of dying to begin with. Yeah. So some of them that are intubated, you know, even with all the care that we give, you know, they still have a potential 90% mortality with all the treatment. And I suppose as well with patients having strokes, it's the rehabilitation, yeah. and the time it takes to, for them to get back to some kind of normal and, you know, permanent loss of function must be terrible. It is bad. And the neurological symptoms long term for those that have had strokes are really quite profound. So there's problems with short term memory, recall, speech, numbers, and some of their jobs are quite high powered so a risk of them not then being able to go back That's to right. work it doesn't happen often you can reverse that a little bit if you get them soon enough mm. um, and you know it can get better but some patients have lost jobs because of this yeah is there any support groups of patients with, mm. or anything if if say if I was a nurse discharging a patient and they were anxious about going home because I think sometimes it doesn't matter how much information you give and yeah. the support that's there they're still going to feel anxious is there somewhere else that we could direct them to yeah so there's the ttp network which is the uk ttp patient group and one of our patients has generated a buddy scheme okay um, and did a survey on about 100 of the patients and presented it last week. So they do have a buddy scheme. That's why I couldn't come last Thursday. So we had a UK <laughs> meeting. Oh, great. <laughs> um, so that, that facility is definitely available. And, you know, they are a really good, sensible, empathetic group of patients who are very supportive. That's really good. So they can be directed to the TTP network. It's, I've never looked at it because I don't think I should. It's not for me, it's for them. But it's a good community for them to support sure. each other who's oh, been yeah, in yeah. that situation. Yeah. Because there aren't very many people that have. No. Oh, wow. It's really very good, actually. Mm.
Fantastic. So we work quite closely with them, but I don't get involved with the site. You if you see what I mean, I have yeah. to keep that separate. They need to be able to, you know, say whatever they want to say on there. So <laughs> without me looking. Now, can I ask, a patient might come in with suspected TTP and then it turns out they have AHUS. Yeah. And we train our nurses about, you know, TTP and then all of a sudden there's completely different disease. Can you tell us a bit about what AHUS is and kind of... Yeah. I guess reassure us that we're doing the right things for these patients? So essentially from a nursing perspective it's the same as TTP. So you know it's an acute thrombotic microangiopathy. Generally the ones who have acute renal injury will be on ITU being filtered anyway so you only see a small minority of them on the ward or once the kidneys are better. Mm. But all the care is the same as TTP. The only difference is they do get plasma exchange, which is very good for the haematology side of HUS. But to resolve the disease, they get a different drug, something called ecolizumab, which inhibits the complement system. And they receive weekly doses of that, and it's very good. I mean, it's a, a complete disease changer. Really? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Do we so, see many of those cases? Yeah. Here? Probably got one. Uh, yeah, we've got the highest... Well, probably one of the biggest international centres for that as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know you're and looking after There's a lot of them. renal impairment, but we don't have like a renal speciality within UCLH. No, so I work... tricky, doesn't yeah, it? Well, yeah, well, acutely no, no. not. So okay. they get filtered down on ITU. Yeah. And the majority of their renal function has improved significantly by the time we discharge them. Okay. when you give them the ecluzumab. But we have to do more tests to exclude other conditions. So unlike TTP where we just do an ADAMP13, it's low diagnosed TTP. You can't do that with HUS. You have to exclude a load of other conditions. Now, if they still are on dialysis or filtration and require ongoing dialysis, the renal units have a lot of networks. There's a lot of little dialysis units often near to where they are. And we have a very good network in London and the southeast with the, the renal doctors too. And I do a joint clinic with one of the renal doctors from the Royal Free. Okay. So we've, we've got all that established. And part of that establishment is they all come here because right. they need plasma exchange. And then, you know, if they're part of the Royal Free, then they will go eventually to the Royal Free or the Royal London or Essex or wherever. So there's a good network that already exists for that. So sometimes patients are diagnosed in pregnancy and when they come out of, if they need to go to the obstetric unit, because they may not do if it's postpartum, and if the babies aren't in a neonatal unit somewhere, generally the wards have always got a cot so babies in the room with mum, because they can be here for quite some time. Obviously, they've got to have somebody looking after the baby that is not mum, because that wouldn't be appropriate. But it seems to be no problem at all, which is a lovely service to be able to Provide offer. For yeah, them, yeah, for sure. Otherwise, there are big bonding issues, particularly for the ladies where the babies are in the neonatal unit for other things. Or if they've had them, you know, 26, 27 weeks, which sometimes happens. So it's just to know, the nursing staff to know that that does sometimes happen. But usually we go through senior staff, so they filter that down. But it's not, un- it looks a bit atypical, but it's not unusual over the years for that to happen. And is it more likely that they develop TTP in this situation after having a baby or whilst pregnant? 
it's usually in pregnancy um, or around the time of the birth. HUS is typically after they've had the baby in the postpartum period. Um, I'm sounding a bit tentative. When we looked at all the cases, the majority were in the third trimester and postpartum for TTP. It's just we've had a lot over the years that have a delivery at 27, 28 weeks. And they're usually the congenital patients, which are quite different. Um, or they've lost the baby, usually in the second trimester, and then get sent over here, and that's very difficult. So it's just so they know if you suddenly hear a baby screaming in the room, it's <laughs> quite normal in, well, not normal in haematology, but we do accommodate it. Yeah, and at least we, we have side rooms, yeah. and we can, we can call help from our colleagues at EGA if we need it. <laughs> <laughs>